This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Simon McKenzie, a research fellow at the UQ Law School. In 1976, the UN General Assembly adopted the Convention on the Prohibition of Military or Any Other Hostile Use of Environmental Modification Techniques, known as the NMOD Convention. This convention, which has been ratified by 78 states, prohibits weaponizing the natural environment against other state parties. However, the technology it regulates, the artificial creation of natural phenomena like earthquakes, cyclones or tsunamis for hostile purposes, has never been used. This technology is like something out of science fiction. In this episode, we're going to examine how this striking convention came to be, what the drafters thought it might cover, and why they thought it was a useful new treaty for the law of war. To help us better understand the Enmont Convention, we're joined by Associate Professor Emily Crawford from the University of Sydney Law School. She's an expert on Enmont, among other things, having recently written an excellent book chapter on the convention in the collection International Law and the Cold War, published by CUP. She teaches and researches international law, international humanitarian law, and international criminal law, and is published widely, including several books. We're fortunate she's agreed to help us exp- help explain this strange convention to us. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So what is NMOD? So NMOD was a convention adopted uh, in the, the mid-1970s uh, in response to concerns being raised that there was a possibility that there could be uh, manipulation of the weather for hostile purposes. So basically the the superpowers and smaller states, uh, as far as we know, genuinely believed that there was the possibility to weaponize the environment. So what what sort of techniques did it did it address and how did it how did the convention actually operate? well, the the convention was designed to address fairly high level uh, environmental weaponization so things like the creation of cyclones tsunamis earthquakes you know really kind of uh james bond villain type uh manipulation of the natural environment uh but it wasn't actually prompted by anything so serious uh part of the reason why nmod came about was uh there had been a report that had come out there'd been news that had come out of the u.s congress that cloud seeding uh, the, crea- the artificial creation of rain had taken place in Indochina, specifically over Laos and Vietnam. And one of the uh, American congressmen had brought this to the attention of Congress and said, basically, I call upon the US government to commit to not weaponizing the environment. This then got picked up uh, in bilateral talks with the USSR. And ultimately, NMOD gets adopted, but it doesn't get adopted um, it doesn't include a prohibition of cloud seeding in its ambit. It, inc- it has this prohibition of this kind of very high level kind of uh, weather manipulation. So it's sort of, yeah, it's not, not a weather influence. It's creating cyclones, earthquakes. Yes, really, really kind of serious, uh, devastating kind of forces rather than just, um, you know, not to say that, that rain can't be devastating, but not not talking about things like making it rain so much that it's difficult to uh, go out into the field or making it rain so much that the roads become 
muddy and impassable. They were really talking about uh, uh, much more much more serious kinds of destruction of the natural environment for the purposes of weaponizing it. So did the convention, uh, was it sort of a complete package with the ban? Was it about banning the research and development and employment or was it? It wasn't. It was actually only um, prohibiting the employment of such mechanisms. It didn't actually ban research into it, um, either for hostile purposes or peaceful purposes, um, or even development of uh, the kinds of techniques that were involved here. And so the, the sort of limitation that the convention put on it was about widespread, long-lasting and severe damage or, or influence on the environment. And was it sort of applied broadly or was it just state parties or who, was, who did they think that the convention would cover? Well, I mean, obviously any treaty hopes that it's going to have universal participation, that, that everyone's going to respect the terms. But NMOD was clear that it only applies to parties to NMOD. So states' parties to the treaty must... Uh, agree not to uh, manipulate the weather, to engage in in hostile environmental modification against another uh, state party. So it's it's very clear that NMOD only applies to the state's parties. So if a state party is if a state is not party to NMOD, uh, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be captured. Yeah. So as long as they weren't. Uh, using cyclones against one of the the signatories, it would be okay. <laughs> yes. Yep. A strange, strange situation. Um. So I wondered if we could talk a bit more about the historical context of NMOD. And you you mentioned that with the Vietnam War, but what exactly was the US doing in Vietnam with cloud seeding? So, um, the US and and the the Soviets had since the end of the the Second World War been investigating the possibility of manipulating the weather for the purposes of not necessarily weaponizing the environment, but certainly for the purposes of either creating an environment more conducive to uh, war making for themselves or making it harder for the other side to engage in hostilities. So the idea would be that if you've got, you want to be able to create fog for your adversary so they can't see, uh, or you want to be able to create either extreme cold or extreme heat or something like that, you know, a lot of rain or something like that, in order to make it harder for the other side to fight. So there, there had always been research into that, uh, into that particular area of weather manipulation. Uh, it's still ongoing. But uh, in terms of what actually prompted Enmont, uh, in the 1960s, the US had implemented a program in um, Indochina known as Project Popeye. And the idea behind it was that they wanted to create sufficient rainfall um, between North and South Vietnam as to make it impossible for the North Vietnamese to use the roads for supply lines. So basically what they wanted to do was to make the the roads so muddy that trucks couldn't traverse them, the North Vietnamese supply lines would break down and therefore the North Vietnamese would be more susceptible to uh, military attack and then eventual surrender. and early results of the cloud seeding, uh, both in Project Popeye and then later on in, in another project called Project Motorpool, um, seem to indicate that, yes, there was uh, a creation of a certain amount of rain that could potentially be considered more than usual for the season. And so the idea was to then uh, eventually deploy that in North Vietnam. Uh, the problem was that before they could do that, the issue got brought before the Congress uh, by a senator who basically said, this is not okay, 
we need to commit to banning this kind of um, environmental modification research, which they did. Within a year, the Senate passed a resolution um, that called on the US to negotiate uh, a convention prohibiting environmental or geo geophysical modification techniques. And so how did the other states respond to this um, American initiative? Was it an American initiative or was there more international pressure to, to, to come up with a, uh, some sort of convention regulating it? Look from the, the the stuff that I from the research that I did from the, the the materials that I looked into, it seemed to be primarily motivated by the US. I mean, part of part of this being such a, an unusual convention that really hasn't been applied much has meant that there hasn't been a lot of available information about it. Um, so all available information that I could get my hands on um, indicated that it was primarily a US initiative. So that in um, uh, 70, end of 73, beginning of 74, the US reached out to the USSR and said, why don't we negotiate a bilateral agreement? Uh, and it looked like that was going to happen. And then the USSR uh, unilaterally brought the question to the General Assembly. And instead, rather than negotiating bilaterally with the Americans, the Soviets came out and said, let's have an international convention. Uh, and then was it sort of a fairly straightforward negotiation process or was there much sort of debate or? It certainly seems to be pretty straightforward. The, there aren't a lot of um, travaux preparatoire available uh, from NMOD. Uh, so instead, basically what happened was the General Assembly, after, after um, the Soviets brought the question to the General Assembly, um, the, the Assembly asked the, uh, the conference on the Committee of Disarmament uh, to look at the question to see whether or not a treaty should be adopted. They held a number of meetings throughout 1970, uh, 1975 uh, and they couldn't come to an agreement as to whether or not a, a treaty was necessary. So instead the reports of all of the treating of all of the, the committee meetings were sent to the General Assembly. The idea was that the first committee of the General Assembly would deliberate on a new draft. And then ultimately, fairly quickly, if you consider that this started in 1975, by 1976, they had transmitted a draft convention to the General Assembly, which was then adopted as a resolution. So rather than actually holding a conference like the, you know, like there was for the Geneva Conventions, uh, instead it got dealt with all in the General Assembly. I mean, that all, all suggests it was sort of relatively non-controversial. Was that because of the what the treaty was banning or prohibiting was so... Um, ambitious, technologically ambitious, that states weren't particularly concerned with it or? Yeah, the threshold was set very, very high. Uh, so I think that there was there was really a, a sense among states who adopted the treaty that this was um, either never going to be implemented in practice or if it was, it was going to be for events that were of such a high threshold that it wasn't really necessary to worry too much about it, that it wasn't particularly controversial in that respect. So in, in your chapter, you talk about the sort of role of paranoia. Do you think that the US or USSR genuinely feared that the other superpower was developing this kind of technology? And was that kind of part of popular culture at the time? Yeah, look, I mean, it's again, because there are so few contemporaneous uh, documents that I've been able to get my hands on. And we're, I mean, we're also limited by the fact that Anything that would have come out of the USSR at the time, if it was available, um, probably hasn't been translated into English. I'm, I don't speak Russian, unfortunately. You get a sense that there was probably a mix, that there, were, there would have been people who were genuinely convinced that this was, this was on the cards uh, and others who just thought, 
Whether or not this is going to happen, uh, we don't know, but this seems like an easy legislative win. So is that sort of the the propaganda aspect of the NMOD convention that you you talk about this sort of role of it being about being seen to do something? Yeah, I mean, look, it's to, to some degree you can understand the motivation, which is that to the layperson, to the politician, to the lawyer, uh, to someone who doesn't actually have the scientific or technical expertise. If in 1900 someone had said to them, we will be able to create something like the atom bomb that can cause massive destruction, and we will be able to do that in 50 years' time, the average layperson would have been astonished. They would have just thought this seems incomprehensible. I mean, we're, we're talking about an era where we still don't really have motor vehicles. We don't really have widespread use of electricity uh, in the same way. We don't really have telephones everywhere. So you can understand how saying to someone we're creating this, this weapon of mass destruction uh, that will cause this massive devastation and we can do it soon. You can see how to someone in 1945, someone saying to them, well, now that we've harnessed the the atom, now that we understand the mechanics behind that, surely we're going to be able to manipulate other um, fundamental processes because, you know, in essence, atomic warfare is about manipulating uh, essential elemental processes. So it wouldn't have seemed so completely bizarre to say within 50 years we're going to be able to control the weather. And certainly the the kind of pop culture of the time, the pulp fiction, the, the science fiction literature have all factored in weather manipulation and weather control as just a given in the future. You have a read of any of the kind of mid-century science fiction and they present this utopia where the weather can be controlled. I mean, one of the cornerstones of Isaac Asimov's uh, iRobot series is the fact that computers have been able to control the weather to just make things more hospitable for humans to survive. So you can you can understand why that motivation was there. But at the same time, anyone who even lived through the tail end of the Cold War, as I did, knows that um, propaganda and grandstanding was a huge part of the Cold War. It was about uh, displays of force, displays of power. Uh, we all know the, the imagery of... Uh, these tanks and, and missiles being paraded through Red Square. So I think that both the uh, dialogue around the creation of NMOD and then ultimately the, the signing of the NMOD convention was very much about both demonstrating we potentially have this power you don't know and look how generous we're being that we're, being, that we're prepared to not do it. Yeah, I, did, I thought that was a really interesting observation in your in your chapter about that sort of how saying you can't do something is a demonstration that you you might be able to do it and so you should be thankful for how generously uh, kind you're being in, in saying you're not going to do it anymore. Yes, especially when you consider the historic reluctance of, of certain states to uh, ratify weapons conventions um, treaties, so weapons limitation treaties. The fact that there was such willingness to adopt this weapons limitation treaty, I think it, it you can read a lot into it. So what was sort of happening more broadly in IHL at the time? Was this a sort of a diversionary tactic or or what was were there other things that this this convention took took effort away from because it was, I suppose, two years of, of people drafting it or well the MR convention was was drafted essentially a lot um, at the same time as the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions were being debated in Geneva. Now, that was a three-year-long conference that was much more involved and much more controversial uh, 
but it was being largely spearheaded by the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross. So there were plenty of international legal experts whose, whose attentions were dedicated to um, the manifold complex issues that were involved in the additional protocols. But yes, the, um, the, uh, because Enmont was, was under the purview of the General Assembly and the Committee on Disarmament, it seems that in essence what the Committee on Disarmament did was dropped any work into nuclear weapons limitations talks and research and instead focused on uh, Enmont instead. And um, the the head of the um, Stockholm, Stockholm Institute for Peace uh, and Re the Peace Research Initiative um, said at the time that NMOD seems to be a way in which the, uh, the states could talk about weapons limitation without actually having to focus on weapons limitation, uh, because basically it meant that they could instead limit a weapon that they didn't own and were never going to develop, rather than having to focus on limiting nuclear weapons, which they absolutely did own and were continuing to research and development. So when you sort of reflect on the the NMOD convention, what do you take from it as a as a an example of international lawmaking? What are your lessons from EDMOD? Look, in a weird way, I actually find EDMOD quite encouraging because uh, we all know, because we're all, we're all human, the motivations for any, any state doing anything are always going to be varied. There will always be people who believe in um, multilateralism and bilateralism and, and creating new treaties because they think it's the right thing to do. There are others who will do it for political purposes uh, so there are always manifold motivations behind why states do what they do. Uh, so I don't think you can, as interesting as it is, I don't think you you need to get too bogged down in looking at the reasons why Enmont was adopted. But I think it was a really interesting moment where there was uh, an embrace of multilateralism in the sense of everyone kind of came together and drafted a treaty comparatively quickly. Now, of course, that's partially to do with the fact that it was essentially uncontroversial, but still at the height of the Cold War, the fact that the Soviets and the US were still prepared to sit down in the same room and say, here is something we agree on, that was something that was really significant. I also find it oddly encouraging because, as any scholar of IHL knows, IHL rules have always been reasonably reactive. They tend to be, um, IHL rules tend to be adopted and, and developed in the aftermath of some major event. So after um, the Second World War, we get the Geneva Conventions. After the decolonisation wars of the 60s, we get the additional protocols. So there does seem to be a bit of a reactive quality to IHL in some respects. So for anyone to actually sit down and go, hey, could this be a possibility? Maybe we should do something about it, uh, is actually encouraging. It, it, does show a bit of forward thinking and we can kind of see that now with um, with the work that's being done um, in the General Assembly and in the, um, the committee with regards to conventional weapons about looking at whether or not autonomous weapons, fully autonomous weapons should be prohibited or limited, whether there needs to be a treaty in that respect. So you'd see, because uh, I had a similar thought with the autonomous weapons debate and, and Edmond, it seems that there's fears about the technology, which is driven by, I guess, some kind of stories that are told in the community about what technologies could possibly do. And But there's also an agreement amongst some powerful states of the, the way that that might be regulated or um, lightly regulated. <laughs> 
And so there's some interesting resonances in that discussion and the Edmond Convention, although unlike the Edmond Convention, it seems that definitional issues are a real issue with autonomous weapons in a way that's not the case with Edmond. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way I, I look at Edmond is that, you know, all, all treaties stand as precedent in the sense of they either work and are implemented in practice and uh, they then serve as a template for future lawmaking or they don't work or are not implemented in practice. And that serves as a moment where, where you can look at it and go, well, why not? Uh, and what does that mean? So even if this is a treaty that has never been applied in practice, which it absolutely is, it still serves as a useful kind of moment to, to, to look at lawmaking and go, well, what was it about this point in time that brought this about? And does that teach us anything that we can use in the future? You could say it's a very effective treaty since it's uh, forestalled any uh, technological development into weather control and hurricane creation. Yeah. And look, the thing is that, again, I mean, with all of these things, I'm I'm limited by, you know, as, as is any kind of lay observer with regards to things like cyber warfare and autonomous weapons and things like that. We're not technical experts, so we don't necessarily know whether these things are genuinely possible. I, you know, I for one have had my uh, had my understandings of cyber war completely ruined by by Hollywood movies. But the fact that there are experts who are looking at this and saying, "Look, this this could be a possibility," that's actually useful. The fact that we have states willing to sit down and go, "We don't yet know the parameters of this, but we're not sure about it, and we think it could be a problem." I I, I think that's encouraging. I think. The more you can encourage states to be thoughtful about uh, potentially destructive weaponry, the better it is, even if that potentially destructive weaponry is in the kind of realms of, of, uh, of fantasy or imagination, because eventually they won't be fantasy or imagination. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of the relationship between the technological development and the stories we tell about it are if we think it's possible, then scientists and research money is put into the thing that we think is possible. So foreclosing it or saying this isn't something we're interested in is uh, perhaps has an important benefit, which we should be heartened by. <laughs> um, so to, to finish off, other, other than your own chapter on Enmod, are there other readings or, or papers or books about the time that you think are particularly interesting with regards to IHL and the technology? Uh, well, so the, the book that my chapter appeared in is a book that um, was done by Matt Craven, Gary Simpson and Sandeer Paja about international law during the time of the Cold War and that has a couple of chapters on nuclear disarmament and uh, other kinds of uh, IHL-related topics which I, I, would, I would strongly recommend people to have a look at. Um, but the, the book that I drew most on in terms of... Uh, the chapter for the kind of historical perspective was a book called Fixing the Sky, which is a book about the history of not just uh, environmental modification for uh, hostile purposes, but more about the history and technology behind uh, weather control and how it's been kind of theorised as the, the be-all and end-all by a lot of scientists. Because if you think about it, weather control would actually uh, fix a lot of problems uh, you know, at the moment that we're recording this this podcast, Sydney is subject to a, a, what people are calling a, a once-in-a-decade weather event where we're having flooding in areas that haven't been flooded in decades. So 
the idea that uh, weather and climate control uh, is kind of this really, really important thing to do, I, I, I would highly encourage it. So it's, it's uh, by James Fleming. It came out from Columbia University Press in 2010. That's uh, an interesting observation about how, if anything, we, we probably wish we could control the weather <laughs> at the moment to, to halt climate change, whereas it had a different valence in the 1970s. Absolutely. Well, I think that's uh, all the questions I had. So thanks so much for joining us, Emily. That's been really interesting. Quite all right. Happy to, happy to do so. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagra peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.